And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. There's one thing we know for sure right now, that even in a world of uncertainty, cancer doesn't stop, even in the midst of a global crisis. So on Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is hosting a trailblazing event called The Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie. The event will raise funds to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. So join us and step up to take cancer down. You climb 61 floors or 1,760 steps. You can do this anywhere, inside, outside, on stairs, on the road, or on your treadmill. What you'll do is sign up, and on June 13th, join in for an opening ceremony, and then take on your climb with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's heart-pumping playlist to keep you motivated. Join in June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. You can register for the big virtual climb at lls.org slash big climb. That's lls.org slash big climb. Hello and welcome to Front and Nationwide. This is the Athletics Dedicated Blue Jackets Podcast. Aaron Portson with you on a Friday morning. Allison Lucan is here. Good morning. And we have a very special guest with us this morning, uh, Dr. Mark Cameron, Associate Professor in the Case Western Reserve School of Medicine, specifically the Department of Population and Quantitative Health Sciences. Dr. Cameron, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And we are going to hit you with all sorts of questions about the NHL's plan to restart. Two cities, 
24 teams. Um, this is a this is quite the undertaking. Um, we have seen baseball in Taiwan. We've seen soccer in Germany. Other sports in other parts of the world are starting to awaken. Uh, you are a hockey fan yourself. You're obviously uh, quite keyed in on this pandemic. How reasonable, how audacious, where does this fall for you, the NHL's plan to restart the 2019-20 season? Actually, um, I will join into the uh, optimistic view um, that even at this time, um, we can get back to some of our uh, daily activities and we can get back uh, to some of the other uh, parts of our day-to-day -day life um, that we enjoy, including um, having uh, sports go back, uh, having hockey come back and um, have these uh, aspects of our life uh, back in order. Um, the virus is still out there most of the states are still uh, chattering around um, their peak numbers. Uh, however, Ohio is one of the few that is past its peak and providing it stays there and we are at this backside of the curve um, by continuing to take the measures and listen to the guidelines that um, the public health uh, professionals are laying out for us, uh, we should continue to be an exemplary uh, state um, in controlling the number of new cases that are out there every day. So on that background, um, I remain optimistic that we can get back uh, to some sense of normalcy and bring um, team sports and um, sports participation back into our day-to-day uh, -day, uh, lives. We have a few more tools now than we did in early March before we went on the stay at home order to put in place and to enact plans to do that with some sense of mitigation of risk, not zero risk, but some sense of mitigation of risk of continued transmission in plans uh, like this. I recall early March, uh, Governor Mike DeWine and his staff calling off the Arnold Fitness Classic. And for those who aren't in Columbus or Ohio, maybe don't realize the, the grand scope of that gathering, the, the sheer number of people it brings to town from all over the country. And a lot of people were really, really upset about that decision. How key was that? And And tell me what you attribute Ohio's handling of this, the success of this, as you've mentioned it, what do you attribute that to? Is it DeWine and his staff, Dr. Amy Acton and others? Where, where, who else deserves credit, if anyone in there? So you said it right there. It was uh, Governor DeWine and Dr. Amy Acton and all of the teams that uh, support them in following the uh, pandemic as it arose and it uh, started to peak in Ohio and communicating well and following the data uh, extremely well and being proactive in rolling out these graduated um, public health responses uh, and uh, other means of limiting the spread. Now in Ohio, we had um, the ability to look somewhat forward by seeing um, the outbreak in other parts of the world, uh, like Italy, which was about 10 to 14 days ahead of us, um, New York, 
or the West Coast and the measures that they were putting in place and the efficacy of those controls in limiting new infections. Ohio had a chance to get in early and um, really have time to look at the data, look at the, the prospective measures to put in place to control the infection, and then really to get out there and proactively educate the uh, community here in the value of following those measures. Now, as we go back to some sense of normalcy and start opening businesses and opening uh, team sports and the type of plan that you're talking uh, about with the uh, NHL, um, it has also been uh, enacted with much care and thought. Okay, what we can, can we get back to um, with reasonable uh, safety? What extra measures do we have to continue to follow to limit the risks as best as possible. Now, the example you mentioned um, in terms of large gatherings and um, other events uh, where we are congregating in large numbers were the first type of um, activities uh, that uh, came off of uh, these, uh, these rules. Right. The things that we want to continue to look at, the risk factors, in bringing back um, the activities now or activities to come are, okay, well, what are the capacities of say a business or a, a sports venue uh, or um, things like getting back to normal in terms of our travel and uh, accommodations in other um, uh, cities or states as we get back to uh, you know our travel and our vacations. Uh, the capacities, the ability to social uh, distance uh, wh wherever we are um, congregating, the time uh, it takes at that particular business or um, arena, for example, the time together means something in terms of the risk of spread. The activity um, you know, that we're uh, carrying out at that location, is it exercise, is it um, um, singing in a, in, a, in a church congregation? Uh, is it activity um, that is, you know, more with your family um, instead of bringing large groups of people together? And then can we add something like a mask to the practice? These facial coverings and masking guidelines that's one thing we didn't have back in early March as the numbers were surging in Ohio. Right. And masking um, appears to be a very good way of preventing um, oneself um, who may be infected and not know it. And, and um, you know, if you're asymptomatic from spreading the virus to those around you. So masking is a big part of this equation in coming back. Interesting. Uh, testing has been an issue, I, I think, in, at some point in almost every state. Uh, Governor Mike DeWine, speaking to the Cincinnati Inquirer this week, acknowledged that it's been, it's lagged behind here. Um, how, what's the outlook look like for that? And how possible is it that by, say, middle of June, maybe, in July that this state would have an abundance of tests such that you could justify giving two or three a week to hockey players so that they can play hockey. I think that's a concern that many people have. Players within the game have expressed 
they don't want to be taking tests away from other people, anybody that really needs it. Where are we at with that and how, how plausible is it that there would be enough testing to do what the league wants to do? Right. So Ohio there is again ahead of the uh, uh, curve. Um, we have worked so hard to flatten the curve, to limit the number of new cases that are identified each and every day. That means there has been a lot of cooperation between the community, between the uh, health departments and between uh, leadership. So it has worked and we are one of the few states that is solidly uh, past its peak. There are still hundreds of cases identified in Ohio every day. However, we are past those peak um, numbers that we saw at the surge. Testing has been a part of that. Um, Ohio has uh, rolled out testing and has been very innovative in how to prioritize uh, how that test is administered. And that prioritization has um, increased as the test becomes more and more available. Our numbers in this state, um, our hospitalizations are way down. Um, the number of deaths, um, they still tragically occur, but they are way down too. And that is reflective of Ohio's testing ability. Um, because if we are still identifying uh, cases every day, but our hospitalization and death rates are down, it means that we are identifying people more quickly and or we are identifying uh, people that are asymptomatic or have mild infections. So all of that is really, really good news uh, for this state and really, really good news uh, for uh, the NI NHL's uh, uh, plan here uh, to re uh, restore um, you know, the NHL and its uh, activities in some way through these hubs. I'm really impressed by this plan. And it has uh, resulted from very careful uh, thought uh, process. And the criteria have been very strong in considering uh, the NHL's uh, return. Um, they are taking the epidemiology into account. So they've chosen a number of cities uh, possible for this um, restored activity. Um, and they've based some of those decisions on the epidemiology. Uh, so for example, Ohio is there and Columbus, um, that's reflective of the state's ability to deal with and uh, limit uh, the uh, spread of this uh, virus. It also is allowing change and flexibility and multiple options. So that's very smart because um, the virus, you know, cannot be controlled necessarily by guidelines and expectations. And as Ohio goes back to business and back to uh, some activity, uh, we have to be monitoring those uh, case counts and uh, be aware of new clusters of cases or, and, uh, and hopefully not, um, a second uh, peak of infections. Again, Ohio's ahead of the curve in terms of monitoring uh, for that event. So that's very good news as well. So the NHL's plan um, taking testing levels into account is great um, to have uh, monitoring protocols in place uh, for players and their contacts um, as this plan is rolled out, um, to have 
careful um, quarantine uh, procedures. Uh, if there's a case identified or as travel between teams comes into play, that's great. And also basically limiting the roster and their contacts. Um, I think I saw numbers uh, somewhere between 25 to 50 uh, individuals in close uh, contact is a very good part of the plan. So I remain very optimistic here that the NHL can get back to some of these short season um, activities um, and uh, do it while mitigating risk as best as possible. This is essentially a bubble plan, yeah. but it's thought and planning process um, as I've been reading um, the way that they're going to enact these and make these decisions is excellent. To that point, Dr. Cameron, if you could share, you know, there's, there's so many questions still of this bubble plan. When you're talking about this number of people, like you said, it's, it's approximately probably 600 people total, 360 players. Yeah. What steps, how strict does this bubble have to be? What steps have to be taken to keep this bubble truly safe if, if the league returns to play? Right. So first of all, there are the decisions that have to be made of who is within that bubble. Mm -hmm. And again, that has to be um, by um, prioritizing uh, uh, people that truly have to be uh, within that uh, bubble, um, that um, all of the uh, measures that are possible uh, to uh, put in place as uh, players and their families uh, and management coaches and their contacts are brought uh, within that bubble. Um, and then how to um, educate and how to um, encourage that uh, those individuals can operate with their uh, defense players up, uh, for lack of a better word, operate with our bubble up, our shield up, our guards uh, up. Um, the number of people within that bubble uh, certainly um, uh, has uh, a, uh, a large factor to do with uh, mitigating infection risk. Uh, having people come into that bubble um, tested or, and monitored for symptoms or the virus as best as possible. And then really operating within that bubble, knowing that uh, if there isn't adherence to the guidelines, or there's a loss of control of um, that uh, sort of large quarantine area um, that uh, everybody's been brought uh, into. It is a open risk for transmission of new cases. Because this virus um, causes very mild disease in um, most individuals, or there can be asymptomatic infection, um, that really turns the um, bubble uh, concept um, on its head because if there is an infection that can make it within that bubble, the ease of um, transmission between individuals um, is very high with this virus. COVID-19 has taught us a lot of new lessons in terms of how a coronavirus can spread and the severe impacts on the most vulnerable patients that it can have. So the other side of this is monitoring 
for new infections, identifying them early because there is a fairly high risk of them happening even within a bubble. And because of the bubble concept, um, it's quite likely that a single case can spread quite quickly within. Um, so all of these considerations have to be part of the protocol. And this really is a protocol. This has to happen step by step. And all of these things have to be considered. But again, coming back uh, to the NHL's uh, plan and their thought process and their criteria, I'm optimistic that this can occur without um, you know, large risks of um, you know, creating this new cluster of um, infections within this bubble, but we all will have to um, keep it up. And certainly the players and their contacts really have to um, adhere to these guidelines and plans. Um, we don't want to be the epicenter of a new cluster of cases because that can spread far beyond that bubble quite easily. So the, so the bubble, I mean, it, it would have to be quite strict, right? Because mm-hmm. we've heard questions of, can a, if the players are, are segmented away in this bubble, could a family member come visit them? I mean, it, it, it sounds like what you're saying is not because you have to really protect the integrity of the bubble. Is that fair to say? Right. So let's go back to um, what our three or four conditions of risk of infection are. Um, capacities and making sure that a group of people uh, coming together uh, can maintain uh, social uh, distance. Obviously that can't happen on the rink, obviously that can't happen um, on the sidelines and uh, with uh, coaching. So that really is the first level of the defense is um, make sure that uh, when the masks have to come off of players, when the, when, when obviously the team has to congregate and uh, be close together, that that is the shortest possible list of people within that bubble. Um, the rest of the uh, potential risks are the time uh, together. Um, as the families uh, of the players and the coaches, um, again, there should be a uh, limited list as best as possible come into this uh, bubble. They're there to stay. Um, and they are the um, most exposed potentially uh, to the virus as players come home from uh, uh, from uh, playing and practicing and congregating. Uh, so the recognition of the family unit that we are all living right now is still there. They are the ones apart from those um, working closely together here on the team um, that are the next level of potential uh, risk of infection. So they have to be monitored, tested, and taken care of. Um, obviously, the activity of players is um, such that you know they can't wear masks on uh, the rink, um, and it's a high uh, level of physical activity. So there's lots of um, you know huffing and puffing, and <laughs> that is another uh, way that the virus likes uh, to spread through activity. So those risks are high. Now, um, apart from, say, um, strenuous play and practice, if we get masking amongst everybody uh, within that bubble, that um, has been proven to help a lot. Monitoring for new infections, 
restricting the travel in and out of that bubble. Basically, I like the idea, and that's why Columbus is on this short list, of building, for example, um, you know, what you see at the Olympics, an Olympic park, you mm -hmm. know, where, you know, people can uh, live and, um, you know, take care of these uh, measures as best as possible. And it essentially becomes a town within a bubble. Um, the players can practice, play, um, teams that will compete can come in and a quarantine plan can be part of that. Uh, and your living, um, your day-to-day -day activities, your, your, your shopping, your travel back and forth between the um, sports uh, venue all occur within this um, geographic and um, personnel uh, restricted bubble. I think that can work. In high school, I doused myself in Brute 33. By college, I was using Old Spice. But now that we're grown up, it's time for Hawthorne. Smelling good is important, and Hawthorne smells really good. It's also really easy to get Hawthorne cologne. Go to hawthorne.co, take the 20-question quiz, it takes three minutes, and it will build an entire line of products you need to be the best you. It's the perfect Father's Day gift for yourself or for your father. Check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co and use your promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. You'll love the way you smell, and more importantly, so will the people around you. That's hawthorne.co and promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off of your first purchase. Hawthorne. Co. Gotcha. You mentioned the huffing and puffing, and we've yeah. heard so much about obviously that it's tra transmitted in the droplets from our breath. But it is mm. is sweat also possible to transmit the disease, or is that not as high risk of at, at passing COVID to another? Um, yeah. So uh, other bo bodily fluids, um, uh, for example, uh, a sweat are not typically infected uh, oh. with the virus. Um, this really is a, a respiratory droplet bioaerosol um, transmission mechanism between person to person. So you have to um, be in close contact with somebody who's infected, say within that six or 12 uh, foot uh, bubble. Um, you have to be exposed to them uh, for a certain amount of time. It's not long. It could be 15 minutes, half an hour. And it has to be in a way that um, you're exposed to the respiratory droplets and the uh, bioaerosols um, that are uh, generated uh, from an infected person, whether they are coughing or not, whether they are sick or not. Um, spread is easy, but it still is uh, through these very predictable uh, mechanisms of you have to be um, sneezed on, coughed on, or in somebody's vicinity um, who is huffing and puffing, or um, in some cases, um, there have been super spreader events at things like choir practice. Mm -hmm. um, there was an example on the West Coast where, um, you know, a group of, um, you know, children and teens came together for a choir practice. 
And one person who was mildly sick, they didn't know that they had COVID, was able to spread it to 52 others simply because they were close together, um, they were singing, and um, this ease of spread in clustered people helped that virus um, super spread within that, um, within that one single choir practice. So examples of that have to factor into um, what we do and um, the risk involved and the importance of monitoring and testing uh, that we uh, put in place here within this NHL uh, hub type uh, system and this, um, and this bubble. The, um, you mentioned before the testing part of this, um, having a uh, nasal pharyngeal swab um, uh, taken for testing, you know, it's an uncomfortable procedure, um, but it's not too bad. Um, <laughs> it is something that can be uh, relatively uh, easily uh, administered and monitored, say on a weekly basis. It doesn't have to be every day, huh. as long as there's an awareness that your uh, status can change day to day, depending on you know, whether you have an exposure uh, within this bubble, but again, the bubble is meant to restrict that. Um, and the NHL has been very cognizant of the fact that they don't want to take tests away from the general public and for the true priorities uh, right now of um, who needs to be tested. Basically, testing is going towards those that are the most sick and vulnerable. They are looking at the um, time period between now and when this starts um, to see whether access to testing is improved. It should be. It's heading that way every single day. Um, however, in the absence of that, there are other parts of the plan, um, of this bubble plan and monitoring plan that can help um, mitigate um, the level of testing that's possible. Certainly, we need to get people into this bubble um, in a controlled fashion and watch for new infections, whether symptoms or testing, it's all gonna be part of this plan. And it's quite conceivable that it can happen and work. We are speaking with Mark Cameron, Associate Professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Um, doctor, I'm, I'm wondering, we've heard a lot about the effects of summer temperature on viruses and how they tend to go down in warm weather and up in cold weather. Do we know how this virus responds to warm weather from examples in other parts of the world that may be summering already? Yeah. So unfortunately with um, pandemic viruses, um, they do not listen very well to <laughs> the concept of uh, summer seasonality of infections. You know, your circulating influenza viruses, your flus and colds, tend to go up in the winter and come down in the summer. And that's partly because the uh, viruses that cause them are vulnerable uh, to heat and humidity that helps along. But it's also um, a factor of our day-to-day -day activity changing mm -hmm. um, over the summer uh, from being stuck inside, uh, shivering uh, you know, <laughs> near a window as we look out to the snow uh, with our family. Um, to getting out in the outdoors and, um, you know, and enjoying uh, summer activities. Now, 
pandemic viruses don't listen to those rules. In fact, um, COVID-19 spread around the world through some of the hottest and most humid uh, climates you can imagine. Um, the H1N1 swine flu epidemic of 2009 uh, peaked in the spring and summer months here in the US and then spread worldwide. We can't rely on summer alone to um, limit the virus. I think we will get some help by it, uh, but we can't count on that alone. The other thing I'd like to say in that regard is all of the summer activities that potentially would limit the infection of a normal virus, we're already doing uh, social distancing and restricting our travel uh, and keeping apart um, rather than congregating uh, closely together to spread the virus. We're already doing those things. So we can't count on uh, that alone to help this uh, virus's um, limitation of spread. Um, what we're more likely to see is a slow burn here um, where we're tempering transmission, keeping our numbers down. Again, Ohio is doing a great uh, job at that. Monitoring for new clusters or outbreaks as they occur and dealing with them. Um, and then preparing for what might be a, another uh, peak or at least a risk thereof in the fall when the cold and flu season starts again as we go back inside and the virus gets an extra chance to transmit uh, between us if we're not doing the measures that we are doing right now, if we don't have those in place. The problem with the second wave in the fall, and this was true of many pandemics, is it will come with other illnesses. So if somebody has a fever, is it COVID or is it flu? All of these ha things have to be taken into effect. Yeah. And for the plan we're talking about today with the NHL, um, the timing of this short season is also important to make sure that it's occurring outside of those kind of natural risks of the virus emerging and re-emerging. What do we know about the antibodies created by this? I've seen in some places reports of, of people getting it, getting COVID-19 multiple times. Do we know definitively yet if a person can get it more than once? Is it, is it less lethal the second time? I shouldn't say less lethal. If it's lethal right. the first time, there wouldn't be a second. Yeah. <laughs> is it less um, damaging the second time? Is it a lesser form of, of illness? Um, where does that stand? So this is one of the, um, you know, most interesting aspects uh, of this virus and a lot of scientific activity is going into figuring this out. This virus has taught us a lot and surprised us a lot. And the um, situation you're talking about where the golden rule of immunology is if you get a virus, if you get a disease that's caused by some microbial agent, you're unlikely to get it again. Your immune system is educated to fight it and it's ready to go the next time uh, that you're exposed. COVID-19 and the virus that causes it, SARS-CoV-2, appears to get around those traditional rules of immunology. Um, the antibody response uh, from your body is not um, strong in some cases. Um, there aren't enough antibodies produced, it seems, 
to um, really be completely immune uh, to the virus if re-exposed. Um, so that is definitely part of the equation here that there may be risks of people getting infected again with COVID. However, the story is not written because of the testing issue. Um, in some of the cases where somebody tested positive um, and had symptoms and then a month or two later tested positive again, what we're starting to learn is the virus can hang around not as an active um, infectious agent, but its sequence can uh, hang around in certain uh, tissues and circumstances. So a positive test isn't a person getting reinfected, it's the virus still there in some um, capacity, in some part to be detected hmm. in tests. So the tests give false positives in that case. Um, oh. However, the antibody levels um, that are produced in normal infections with COVID-19 are not making us immunologists very happy in terms of the long-term protection of individuals who's had COVID um, and uh, would be protected for long periods of times afterwards. Right. Um, so that's definitely part of the, this equation, yeah. And what does that rather sobering fact tell us about a vaccine or how effective a vaccine may be, how difficult it may be to find one? Right. It, it impacts vaccine research um, a lot. Um, the vaccine development um, is challenging enough on its own, um, especially since we need to roll one out as quickly as possible. There has not been an effective um, vaccine to any coronavirus rolled out commercially. Um, so the innovation and development of these vaccines is absolutely forge, forging a new path here. Um, the fact that uh, the coronavirus can evade um, our immune systems in terms of uh, limiting our antibody response means that the vaccine is going to have to be very strong and it may have to be given in a uh, boost type of regimen. We may have to get the vaccine twice. Um, we may need to be vaccinated every uh, five or 10 years, like some of the other vaccines. Tetanus is a good example. Um, and to, to keep our immunity boosted, to truly um, have the community immune, you've heard of herd immunity, um, immune enough to make sure that the virus never gets back in to create these waves of new infections, to break its back and not let it run rampant uh, within our population again. So all of these measures have bearing on vaccine development and absolutely challenge us every day in coming up with therapies and vaccines to deal with this going forward. It, it, I, it's so funny to me, I mean, for the lay person, you alluded to this earlier of how the scientists are learning so much from this disease. And I think we who are not in your field are, are guilty of assuming that a virus follows a certain path of behavior. C can you share with us, like, how different are viruses and what is there left to explore? What, how different can this be? What could change as, as scientists and the medical profession continues to really understand what COVID-19 is all about? Right. Um, 
you know, on one hand, when, um, pro, uh, you know, SARS coronavirus 2 came onto the scene um, and COVID-19 uh, spread around the world, some of the research um, hit the ground running. This isn't the first coronavirus mm -hmm. um, epidemic um, that has come along. Um, I lived in Toronto in 2003 and was part of a research response to SARS um, at the time. Um, SARS coronavirus, the original one, has a lot in common uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2, which causes uh, COVID-19. And the research that was um, enacted was very similar to what we're doing now, um, looking at its pathogenesis in, in, in people. Um, developing a vaccine once we learn more about the virus. Um, there actually were uh, vaccine candidates uh, developed, but they never had to be um, put through uh, the clinical trials and rolled mm. out to the uh, public because SARS went away. Um, there's also MERS, um, mm. uh, you know, a, a coronavirus that um, emerged out of the uh, Middle East. Um, SARS and MERS caused quite severe uh, infections, and that was part of the reason why they were contained more easily than COVID-19. Um, you know, and we've had swine flu and other flu um, epidemics, uh, bird flu, uh, in the meantime. And they've taught us a lot about how uh, different families of viruses spread and how different um, an impact they can have on um, people who get infected and have various different outcomes. Um, all of that kind of experience over the years has given us at least a scientific plan of how to um, start the process of a vaccine. It has given us some potential treatments uh, to help people who are infected. Um, all of that is good. However, we are absolutely shocked with COVID-19 and the virus that causes it because it has managed to get around and surprise us almost every single week in how easy it spreads um, within people who are not showing uh, symptoms, for example, um, how it's able to evade our um, you know, base uh, therapies and uh, care for a patient. The, um, type of symptoms that it's causing um, have not been seen before. For example, this um, inflammatory uh, syndrome in, in children. All of these things are surprising us. So we have to go beyond uh, what we've learned across time with other viruses, treat this as very unique and figure out uh, how to deal with it going forward. We need that vaccine first and foremost, that's for sure, because that would break the infection chain so we didn't have to deal with uh, sick uh, and infected individuals. Gotcha. To, to that point, if, if we talk about a return to play, are there extra measures that need to be taken in terms of what you're learning about this disease? We talked about the, the spread of the virus through, through pulmonary and, and from the mouth and the mm -hmm. nose. Should players be considering extra masks in play? Should players be considering not touching shared surfaces? Are there other extra steps that you think should, should be put in place? You know, I wish I had a, a more specific answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we know at this point um, what has worked um, fairly effectively in flattening Ohio's curve 
and starting down the other side of this pandemic uh, in this state. Um, masking is an extremely important tool. That has been proven uh, study after study, um, you know, up to 50 to 70% of um, infections between individuals um, can be um, prevented by wearing a mask. So I am um, on a soapbox uh, in just every, <laughs> just about every uh, aspect of our uh, daily activities um, to get a mask on um, as much as uh, possible with, um, you know, players uh, on, you know, on the rink, um, uh, either practicing or competing, that's a difficult ask. Um, it's the same with, you know, cyclists or joggers or people working out in the gym. Mm -hmm. um, it's difficult to uh, wear a mask and uh, being, um, you know, exercising or, or doing, um, you know, this type of uh, activity that is, is really uh, physical. Um, but, you know, at the same time, any type of even light covering um, over um, your mouth and nose appears to be affected. Uh, so um, I would hope that, um, you know, those within the NAL, NHL's um, uh, bubble um, or uh, within uh, the uh, areas where people are going to con uh, uh, congregate, add masks to their, um, to their, to their habits, because that can help a lot. Um, and if the masking isn't possible, um, then the protocols have to be strong in terms of uh, testing those that uh, cannot wear a mask uh, within this bubble, uh, at least when they're uh, together or in play, um, and monitoring for new infections um, because the risk will never be zero in those cases. So masks, masks, masks. Um, and then the testing, I think, is a lot more uh, available and accurate uh, than it was a few months ago. Um, so proper monitoring and testing can be part of this plan going forward and that can only improve um, as we gain more time and science catches up uh, to all of this. Dr. Mark Cameron, uh, I have saved our most difficult question for last. <laughs> Your Leafs are playing the Blue Jackets in the startup of this series. Mm -hmm. Best of five uh, <laughs> thoughts. Hey, uh, you know, the Maple Leafs are a, a complete team this year. Um, we team. have all the players in all of the uh, positions. We've got some people back uh, off of, uh, of, of injury. I mean, we have been a very strong uh, third place uh, contender in the Atlantic division for several years. Um, we're coming for you. <laughs> I think we're actually neck and neck, uh, neck, uh, you know, neck and neck in the uh, Eastern Conference as well. Uh, right. So I think we have some exciting uh, uh, games ahead. Our chances of making the uh, the playoffs were were very good. Yes, three or four months ago, before this all started. Absolutely. Um, so I'm looking forward to coming down and attending some. Uh, some some great games uh with you once this is all back to normal and oh. that's the other thing we didn't talk about was 
us uh, spectators and fans can't be in those yeah. stands yeah. for a while, and that's just going to break our heart. Yeah, yeah it's going to be a while. <laughs> well, we look forward to meeting you in person here in Columbus someday. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for, for taking the time this morning and, and joining us on the podcast here. Thank you. Uh, part of my uh, job is getting uh, good information out there from, from good science, and you've helped uh, me a lot do that today. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.